Our text is Matthew 7, the gospel lesson just read. We are returning to the closing section of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is driving home the point of the sermon with a series of applications and warnings. And we'll make two points. They're there on your bulletin outline, the warning and the testing. So first, a warning. Matthew 7, verse 15. Watch out for, or beware, beware of, false prophets, Jesus says. So just as in the previous piece of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, there was one imperative, enter by the narrow gate. There's only one imperative here, only one command, watch out, beware of false prophets. And again, here, this is a present imperative. It's a perpetual need of the church. Be on your guard. Beware of false prophets. Now, the connection in Jesus' mind, right, as he's flowing through this sermon with the previous passage is almost surely the idea that false prophets will blur the distinction between the broad way, which leads to destruction, and the narrow way, which leads to life. They will not be advocates for the way of the cross, generally speaking, for the hard road of discipleship. They will promise something better or easier. In fact, they generally promise something completely incompatible with the whole ethos of the Sermon on the Mount. And thus people love them. Such people make finding the narrow way hard, Jesus is saying. They will obscure it. You can bet that when it comes to a false prophet or a false teacher, Christ Jesus and him crucified are not their central driving passion. Something else will be at the center. So when Jesus speaks here of prophets, he couldn't be including the charismatics who just after this text, on the last day, say to him, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name? I mean, aren't we prophets? Aren't we true prophets? Who nonetheless, as we shall see, Lord willing, next week when we look at that passage, were workers of lawlessness. Now, if there are false prophets, this assumes there's some sort of standard and that there exist true prophets. True prophets... We heard this in the Old Testament lesson from Jeremiah. What distinguishes a true prophet? It is the fact that they are admitted to God's heavenly counsel, his court, his hosts. It's not particularly that they're inspired or they have insight. They are admitted into heaven itself to stand in the presence of God and from there receive his counsel and declare it to the people. False prophets declare their own mind or some muddled, distorted word to the people. Strictly speaking, we here in the Reformed faith do not believe there are prophets today. Jesus is the final, complete word of God, and the apostles and prophets, as sealed to us in Holy Scripture, is the sufficient, final, full, and complete word of God. But there are many who claim to be prophets. 
And by extension, this text would apply to anyone, anyone who claims inspiration or authority to speak for God, to any leader or teacher. And what does James say about teachers in the church? There shouldn't be many of them. Because they will be judged much more strictly. So, at the outset, the thing to see here is Jesus feels that this is, or it shall be, in his own day and in the future, a real serious threat to you. A real problem for the church. And if you go back and sort of take this broad sweeping view, right? You look at the Old Testament history. It's crammed with false prophets who speak their own mind instead of the word of the Lord. Right? Who in their corrupt optimism, Jeremiah tells us, always say peace, peace when there is no peace. Right? They refuse to pronounce oracles of judgment. They prefer to assure the people of God that all will be well. Or as Jeremiah also says, they heal the wound of my people lightly. Jesus treats in his own day much of the Jewish leadership as belonging to this class. Blind leaders of the blind, he calls them. And he sees these pseudo-prophets as growing more numerous in the days ahead. Now you look at the first epistle of John in the New Testament. He says many antichrists have gone out into the world in these last days. So the whole New Testament, right, is full of warnings against false or pseudo prophets and teachers in these last days. Peter warns of the rise of false teachers in 2 Peter 1. We heard that in the New Testament lesson. If you read, for example, the pastoral epistles, that's First and Second Timothy and Titus, they too are full of warnings against false teachers. So is Colossians. So is Galatians. They all repeatedly warn against false teachers. It's a perennial threat. In Second Corinthians, Paul deals at length for four chapters or so with pseudo-apostles who are subverting his authority. If you read the book of Revelation, you will see that the church is up against false teachers, false prophets, demonic and bestial forces until the very end. And if you move out of the pages of the New Testament and you move forward in time into the history of the church, you'll find that the church has had a long and tangled history of dealing with false teachers. A history, by the way, which has not subsided to the present day. Now, they have, in God's good providence, had their value. Right? They have forced the church to clarify itself and its teaching. Right? They forced us to probe the deposit of faith in response to their heresies. Right? What we call orthodoxy, or orthodoxy just means right teaching, what we call right teaching has often been forged in controversy with false teachers. Nevertheless, false teaching is not a good thing. God uses it, but it's not a good thing. It has done and it is doing. It is doing, even in this hour, immeasurable damage. 
And the people who follow it are, and they have been, legion. When I was on vacation, my wife and a couple of my daughters were watching this series on Netflix about some church in the Nashville area, which promised all sorts of things about weight loss, right? They took a couple of scriptures about gluttony and self-control and created a whole empire with a whole array of followers. Thousands of people went to this church, right? And the damage that these people inflicted on the people of God, ostensibly because, you know, they had some scriptural support. These things always have scriptural support is immense, right? So the warning is not one that we can ignore. You likely have neighbors or extended family members or friends or coworkers who have been caught up or enmeshed in this stuff. We have no reason to believe false prophets are going to diminish or go away. Scripture indicates the opposite. They actually increase toward the end. Second Thessalonians. Paul speaks of the man of lawlessness who is himself either the Antichrist or an Antichrist. Right? Paul says he will not be slain until the Lord appears and slays him by the breath of his mouth. So it turns out that the ground that we stand on, the ground that we tread Right? Namely, the ground of the revelation of the Holy God has proven very fruitful for countless errors which exploit, which weaken, which divert, which distort, which damage the sheep. Right? To this very hour, the church is full of diluted crackpots. I had a New Testament professor, some of you know this story, he taught New Testament hermeneutics. The last day of class, this was before the internet, he he, he, he leaves the class and he comes back with this big manila folder crammed with newspaper articles and clippings this thick. And he puts it down on his desk and he says, this is my crackpot file. Right? And it's, it, it's churches like that church I mentioned in the Nashville area. And it's, and it's Christian leaders predicting the end of the world. And it's all sorts of bizarre stuff, false and deceptive stuff. And he says, look, I teach you New Testament hermeneutics. Hermeneutics are how to interpret the text. I teach you this stuff so that you don't end up in my crockpot file. <laughs> I don't want you guys in here someday. Right? So we have crockpots, but we also have sincere. Many of these people are sincere. Many of them are very gifted. But they twist and they distort and they mangle the word of God with these various motivations. We don't know what the motivations always are. But they come to you. Notice Jesus says that in the text. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They arise in. They insinuate themselves into the church. They desire the hearing of the Christian community. Right, we Christians can be very trusting people when it comes to public authority in the church. Right? Many of us sort of defer to public authority. And we've made many false prophets quite wealthy. Quite wealthy. We're taught, after all, to be submissive, right? Not to judge, to be patient, to believe the best. And it appears as if false teachers almost know this. 
So they come to you, Jesus says. But they're deceptive. They come in sheep's clothing, but they are not sheep. What they are is good at disguising themselves as sheep. They can put the wardrobe of sheep on. They're very aware, these people, of the culture that they swim in. They know the trappings of piety. They know just what to do to impress you with their spirituality. They can learn Christianese, that whole unreal language of pious truisms, which many popular teachers and many in the church seem to traffic in. But high Christian theology, like reverent engagement with the deep structures of the text itself, they neither care to nor can often engage in. But they can do a lot of other things. They can shoehorn Bible citations into ordinary conversations. They can feign earnestness. They can preach winsomely. They can win friends and influence people. They can accumulate a follower. Many of these people, most of them are marketing geniuses. And that's usually enough of a disguise. Like it's enough external adornment to pass as sheep in the eyes of many faithful. I mean, there's a reason that these people have enormous followings. So they're deceptive. But it's not just that they're deceptive. They're skillfully deceptive. No false prophet announces him as such. Right, comes out and says that, hey, I'm here and... I'm a false prophet. Because even if Christians are, let's say we're too prone to trust. But we're still nonetheless unlikely to succumb to these open, direct invitations to sin or to do evil or to renounce basic doctrine. We are called to be discerning. So it's very rare that false teachers make flat out heretical statements. I mean, there are verses in the Bible about gluttony and self-control. But they're not going to make statements which are so obvious that Jesus' warning here would hardly be necessary. So there's always subtlety and sophistication which is needed to seduce most people. And so the error comes wrapped in a whole bunch of truth. Back all the way in the second century of the church, Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, bishop of, uh, in, in France, what is today France, Irenaeus had to fight these heretics, many-headed heretical movement known as Gnosticism, which he was involved in combating. But Irenaeus says this, he says, <clears throat> Error never shows itself in its naked reality in order not to be discovered. On the contrary, it dresses elegantly, so that the unwary may be led to believe that, is, that it is more truthful than truth itself. See, that's the thing. The followers of such people think, no, this is the true truth. This is the real truth. We're the only ones doing it right. Everybody else has some form of diluted Christianity. Right? It's, not just a, it's not just another claim on the table. right? It's the claim that it's truer than the truth itself, Irenaeus says. It's elegantly dressed up as something which is, generally speaking, absent or deficient in the rest of Christendom. So... Like Satan, 
who can disguise himself as an angel of light. Think about that. We are up against principalities and powers that have the ability to appear as the very angels of God himself. They dress up. They clothe themselves as sheep. But Jesus says here, inwardly, not outwardly, of course, inwardly, where people can't see, they are ravenous or ferocious wolves, greedy. Right? And wolves destroy the sheep without good shepherds guarding the sheep. So these are not shepherds. They're not even hirelings in the language of John's gospel. They are wolves. They are wolves. You might remember Paul in Acts chapter 20. This is an early fulfillment, by the way, of Jesus' warning right here. In Acts chapter 20, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to himself. He's about to depart from them for the last time. And he says to them with tears, after my departure, from among yourselves, right, not from outside, but from inside the Ephesian church, fierce wolves will arise, not sparing the flock. What else will they do? They will speak twisted things, meaning they'll take the truth and just twist it. And they will do what? Draw disciples away after themselves. So, doctrinal error is not harmless. In itself, it is sin. And it leads to sin. And it harms and it seduces the sheep. It's, it, you know, often, I think long term, it likely does more damage to the church than open rebellion and disobedience. That's out there. You can deal with it. That's a couple people here and a person over there. These are whole movements which tens of thousands of people get caught up in. Wolves destroy the flock, Jesus says. Therefore, Jesus says, we need to take the threat seriously. Guard yourself. Be vigilant. Be discerning. Beware. Watch out for false prophets. And this kind of a warning assumes that there's a people, a community of disciples, who know the contours of the apostolic faith well. Who can discern the difference between the good shepherd's voice and the voice of a false shepherd. Who know the difference between a primary thing, a secondary thing, and a third order thing. Who know the order and proportion of the apostolic faith. And thus the warning here calls upon you and I to become students, learners, listeners, questioners of Holy Scripture. You saw that in the uh, prayer for illumination today. Read, mark, learn, inwardly digest. We have to be armed. We have to be discerning. We have to be sober. We have to be alert. You cannot watch out for false teachers if you have not matured in the faith. If you speak to the followers of these people, the followers will say, oh, he or she is just speaking the word of God. I mean, they're just expositing the Bible. It's just right there in the Bible. God condemns gluttony or whatever. They can't see that things are out of proportion, that they're misshaped. That some marginal thing has been moved to the center. And this is what God calls us to be. A community of disciples who know the contours of the apostolic faith. 
faith and through it, through Holy Scripture, hear the voice of God. Hear the voice of God. Listen to Hebrews 5, which speaks quite pointedly to a church that was being seduced by false teachers. In Hebrews 5, the writer says this, By this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. Right? They were only, this is, the Hebrew church is young. It's, it's not like it's a church that's been around for decades. But the writer thinks the community should by this time be teachers. But that's okay. If you need milk, go back and get milk. Get the basics. He goes on to say solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers trained by constant usage. It's like a gym. It's a physical fitness analogy, right? They're trained by constant repetitive use so they can discern good from evil. You have to be trained to figure out what's wrong with this stuff because a lot of it sounds right or at least plausible. So heed the word of God. Train your powers of discernment. None of us is beyond being deceived. Right? The first step to getting caught up in the web of this stuff is thinking that somehow you're immune to it. That's the warning. The second point is the testing. Okay, so there's a warning, but then Jesus gives, some, gives us some tools to test. Verse 17, by their fruits you will recognize them. He repeats the same words at the, at, in verse 20. So he's very focused, emphasizing discernment by way of fruits. Now, a dressed up wolf can be mistaken for a sheep for a little while. Right? But trees cannot hide their identity very long. Jesus' point here is that eventually, and not just eventually, but inevitably, nature reveals itself. The nature of the tree or the nature of the person. You don't pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. The nature of the fruit will reveal the nature of the tree. So it's a, it's a simple enough point. If we are discerning, prayerfully discerning, reading, digesting, inwardly assimilating Holy Scripture, right? people will eventually show you who they are. What they are. Nature always prevails over the various artifices that we use or construct to hide it. But that's why the people closest to you know who you really are. So I want to say three things about discerning this fruit. Three ways. I'm going to call them character, doctrine, and results. Character, doctrine, and results. So the first thing is character. So fruit, in this case, in this text, is Christ-likeness. When Jesus talks about fruit here, he's not talking about ministry success. Right? The prophets didn't have any outward ministry success. Neither did Jesus in his earthly ministry, for that matter. It's the fruit of the Spirit that he has in mind when he speaks of fruit. If the fruit of the Spirit is present, that's a good indication that you're not dealing with a wolf. Right? And this, this fruit of God's Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, the splendor and light and life-giving power of God, 
That is to be esteemed above the gifts even of the Spirit. Paul demonstrates that in, in 1 Corinthians 13. And we know wolves and prophets can mysteriously be gifted. They can prophesy. They can work miracles. They can cast out demons in Jesus' name. So we have to remember the warning comes in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the larger context of the sermon, Jesus would see fruit as, and here you guys should be able to fill in the blank with me, right? He would see fruit as poverty of spirit. That's where he would start, with the first beatitude at the beginning of the sermon. You can always ask this about a teacher. Is this guy vaunted on a high horse? You know, is he self-sufficient in spirit or is he inwardly poor in spirit and needy? Meekness, showing mercy, purity of heart, thirsting for righteousness, peacemaking. You can fake Christian earnestness. You can fake a kind of conformity to Christ. But you cannot fake an absence of poverty of spirit. You cannot fake the absence of humility or gentleness. Everybody knows it's missing. So Jesus uses similar language to this later on in Matthew's gospel in the context of the final judgment when he speaks of us giving an account for every careless word. He says the good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. So again, there's the idea of nature will reveal itself. And what he means there is this. Speech will eventually disclose character. Tweets will always resurface. Right? Teachers have a history. You can look up what they said. Speech will eventually disclose character. And wolves will be unable over time to tame their tongues. James says much the same thing. He says, you know, Jesus says, can you gather this kind of fruit from that kind of tree? Of course not. James says, how can you use your tongue to bless God and then curse men who are made in the image of God? So we look for the fruit of the Spirit, right? We ask this question. Is this teacher gentle, loving, kind, patient? Do they demonstrate the life of the Beatitudes? This is the first type of fruit, the chief type of fruit. The second thing is doctrine. And here we go to the teaching itself, right? What about the teaching itself? Well, this is a little harder. The faith has been once and for all delivered to the saints, the New Testament tells us. There is an apostolic deposit of truth in the Holy Scriptures, and all of us, not just pastors or elders, all of us must know it, guard it, contend for it. Why do we have to fight like this? Why do we have to contend? Because false prophets will say a lot of good and true things. Right? They, usually, again, they're going to distort a piece of the truth all out of proportion. They will place the emphasis in the wrong place. And disordered truth is the most powerful form of falsehood. Heretics are using 97% right. Anyone who goes back and reads the theology of the first five centuries of the church will find this out. You often read the, you often read the heretic and think, what's wrong with that? <laughs> and then it takes a second or a third or a fourth reading and you realize, oh, I see it now. I see why the church rejected this. 
So, in addition, false prophets love novelty. They love innovation. They love new insights allegedly seen by nobody before them in the whole history of the church. That's a big red flag. They despise holy tradition and teaching in the church which unfolds the mind of Scripture. Spurgeon says they love what the Holy Spirit is allegedly showing them. But what the Holy Spirit has shown to the Holy Catholic Church for 19 centuries, not so much. Not so much. They either hate or they either ignore or they selectively plunder the history of the church. And that, beloved, is a fifth commandment violation. That's a failure to honor your mothers and fathers in the faith. And that's why we have creeds and confessions to bind and to guard us. We are called, John says then, to test the spirits, meaning to test the teaching of people who claim to be teachers. Doctrine has to be tested. We have creeds and councils to test it by. We need to grasp it. And finally, the third thing here is the results. Right? There's the character that you're looking at. There's the fruit and now the teaching and now the results. And this one takes some time. But Jesus is basically saying this. You have to look at the effects of what is being taught closely. Yes, it's true. Maybe a false prophet will immediately seduce people to follow other gods. But more likely, and you see this throughout the pastoral epistles. Again, you read 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus on this. Right? False teaching results in ungodliness and division and endless disputes and wrangling about words. Genealogies and a whole array of foolish controversies which divert men from the chief central things. But Paul says there that the goal of faithful apostolic doctrine is what? Love. Isn't that remarkable? He says, here's the goal of my teaching, Paul says. Love from a pure heart with a good conscience. That's what I'm after. Right? So is the teaching that you're following after that? Love from a pure heart with a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the goal, the aim of all true teachers. Out of a purified heart. So I'm going to conclude with a warning. A text like this can create the wrong spirit in us. Right? We're not called here to a kind of hyper-suspicion right? or heresy hunter, which can be the favorite pastime of some of us. Right? We've got to be careful that we don't rip up the wheat in our zeal to rid the church of the tares. And we're not called ourselves right, to become wranglers about minor quarrels or subordinate issues. So the test that Jesus gives you here, it's a reliable test, but it's not always easy. And it certainly can't always be done quickly. It turns out that doctrinal teaching and its fruits take time to develop. Sometimes it'll take a couple generations. It might take a century or two to realize, oh, that was a major error. We don't know this in a week or two or in a month or even in a year all the time. It takes time to evaluate. And that's why verse 19 in the text is important. If you go back to the text, you look at verse 19, it says this. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, that's not a church, a church action. 
That's an action of the eschatological judgment of God. The broad road does lead to destruction, but ultimately it is God's coming judgment which infallibly and finally deals with the false teacher problem. Right? Verse 19 means we're going to have to live with a lot of this stuff. Right? Jesus does not call us to go around cutting down trees that aren't bearing fruit. He, but he assures you that every tree that doesn't bear fruit, he will cut it down. Our judgments here are provisional. They are partial. We see through a glass darkly and we must never forget this. That's the other thing about false teachers. They don't see through a glass darkly. They see crystal clear. No ambiguity, no shadows, no already not yet complexifying the situation. It's all wired. So we have to be careful that we don't become heresy hunters, but we are called to due diligence, to sober, humble, charitable diligence. Right, to engaging our critical faculties, informed by all the virtues that Jesus has taught us in the sermon. That's very important, right? This kind of work has to be informed and infused by the Spirit. And it's in this Spirit, in this way, then that you are to watch out for false prophets. For by their fruit, that is by their lives, by their doctrine, and by its effects, you will in time recognize them. For true sheep... Heed only the voice of the good shepherd. They will not, Jesus says, follow a stranger. Amen.